0: We're looking at verses 25 to 35, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. This is God's word. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took, up, uh, took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword that will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, together in Jesus' name. Uh, God, thanking you again for your word. Uh, father we we pray you'd speak to us really clearly, Lord, that we can understand who you are, who your son is, father, uh, God, we pray for those who are who are traveling who aren't with us this morning too, Father that you'd give them grace to consider Jesus uh Father, and we pray that uh, when we leave, we would be more impressed with him in order to celebrate him as we should, and we ask this in Jesus name, Amen, Amen. you can be seated. So as as we get ready to walk through some of this story that we see here in Luke chapter 2, something I want to point out is that, you know, human beings, we're always telling stories to each other. And there are some kinds of stories that we like to tell. Certain plot lines that show up in stories over and over again. Have you noticed that, that we like to tell the same type of story? Evidence of this is those terrible Hallmark Christmas movies that are on, that I don't know who watches, Uh, Besides my mom Uh, I don't know who else besides my mom watches But they're all the same movie I think starring the same people every time too But it's, it's to the point where you don't even have to pay attention To much of it Because wherever you hop in you'll know what's happening Because it's the same story Anyway, sometimes we like particular plot lines in our stories One of the plot lines that we like a lot In a lot of our stories is Some like long awaited hero who comes to save the day where people are just waiting and they feel helpless and they hear about this person who might come and fix it all. Uh, And one of the things that happens in some of those stories is uh, when the person shows up who they've been waiting for, people are often disappointed. Uh, It's not quite what they expected. So we see this in all kinds of movies. Like, uh, think about The Matrix. So, anybody seen The Matrix? Okay. If you you haven't seen it yet and I ruined it for you, that's your fault. It's Like 15 years later, Uh, (laughs) The Matrix. You have Neo, uh, who is the one, and uh, he's supposed to save the day. I don't wanna go into it because it's very deep and psychological of a movie, but Morpheus says he's the one, and he tells everyone, this is the guy who's gonna save it, who can really defeat these enemies, and any dude who has on shades that don't go around his ears, you should believe him when he says things. And so he goes to the Oracle. The Oracle says, yes, Neo's the one. But when he first shows up, he's kind of disappointing because he can't really fight good yet. He has, to, he has to learn. And so what happens is people wonder. They watch him. It's like, is he really the one? And then he dies. And people are like, oh, he must not have been. But of course, he resurrects because everybody wants to be Jesus. So at first, they were disappointed. But then he ended up saving the day. It's not just in The Matrix. I, I watched some of the Lego movie with my son yesterday. Same thing. Uh, Emmett is the master builder that they've been waiting on. Or is he? Uh, Kung Fu Panda, right? Uh, Y'all didn't think I was, I'm serious. We love this storyline. Kung Fu Panda, uh, they're looking for the dragon warrior who can defeat this one enemy and it ends up uh, choosing uh, Poe, this panda. And of course, the other Kung Fu warriors are like, I don't know if this dude is it. They say he is, but he's an overweight panda and he looks cuddly. Uh, Ignoring the fact that they have an actual praying mantis in this one. <laughs> I don't think insects. Anyway, they are wondering if he's really supposed to be the one, and of course they doubt him, and he looks weak, and they're disappointed, but in the end he comes through and he's able to save the day. We love these kind of stories. And I think one of the reasons is it points to this kind of universal truth that the hero we're expecting is not always the hero that we need. Amen. The kind of hero that we expect to come save us is not always the kind of hero that we need. And I could go on and on with stories like that. And and one of the reasons is because we're used to thinking of deliverance or a hero as just a really... is not always the one that we expect. Sometimes it looks a lot different, and and sometimes the help we need isn't the kind we look to first. So I'm going to talk about the story of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I don't think there's any surprise about who we're talking about this morning. But I don't want to focus just on the most familiar parts, because um, one of the dangers with, with Christmas, Uh, is there's so much tradition and routine and stuff around it that even the story of Christmas is so familiar and routine that we can hear it and recite it and not realize the impact of it. So what I wanted to do last week was looking at Zechariah's prophecy about Jesus, and then this week, looking at Simeon's praise and prophecy after meeting the born Jesus, is I want us to think carefully about what God is actually doing by sending his son Jesus into the world. So can I give you a little uh, background just to catch you up from last week? Last week we looked at Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and he is prophesying about his son who's going to prepare the way for Jesus. And how Jesus is going to be like the, the rising sun who brings salvation, um, which is incredible. And that, right after that part of the story, Jesus is born in a manger. Because there's no room for them anywhere. And so Jesus is born in this manger and it's amazing. And Jesus is like some kind of magnet because people keep showing up. And in Luke's gospel, some shepherds who are in a field, an angel comes to them. I mean, this is a unique kind of birth announcement, not the ones you send out on Facebook. Angels show up to these shepherds and they say, Jesus, a Savior, has been born and tells them to go to him. So they go to Bethlehem and they go see Jesus and they praise God. Because of what they see for sinning salvation. And then right after that, here's one thing I think we missed. Then Jesus was just part of a regular family. Like from the outside, of it looked real regular. Uh, after that, uh, Jesus' parents do what you'd expect any Jewish parents to do, they circumcise them after eight days. They name them. They wait the right amount of time, and they were supposed to wait for purification after giving birth. Then they bring the newborn to Jerusalem to present them to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice. And what we see from sacrifice is not a wealthy family because they give a poor person sacrifice to young pigeons. So if you were from the outside and you didn't know quite who Jesus was, you might just think this is a regular, poor, hardworking family with an infant. I think we sometimes we imagine that Jesus right out the womb just had like a halo look like we see him. looks like a regular baby. family. You probably wouldn't expect that what you're seeing is the Savior that you've been waiting for. And that's because the hero we expect is not always the hero that we need. So here's one of the main questions I want us to ask this morning is how can we know? How are we supposed to know for sure where to find our salvation if we're often realizing that it's different than what we expect? How do we know? How do we know Jesus is our salvation? How do we know we're not chasing after false stuff? We're going to see how it plays out in our passage. So we're going to meet Simeon. And and the passage begins like any good story, just introducing us to the main character. Uh, So let's read from verse 25 and get to know him. Once upon a time, just playing, uh, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. We'll stop right there. So unlike Zechariah, who we looked at last week, the uh, text doesn't say that Simeon is a priest or a preacher. It just says a man who lived in Jerusalem named Simeon. He just seems like a regular dude. Right. So we could just as easily be a man in Atlanta named Andrew. Right. Just a a man named Simeon. But like Zechariah says, he was righteous. He was devout. He was a godly man. He he generally believed God's word and obeyed it. He wasn't perfect. But he lived this kind of righteous, obedient life. And it also says that, you know, he was looking forward to Israel's consolation. What that means is he believed God's promises. Right. So that the things that God had promised to his people, Israel, if you don't know about Israel, Israel is this nation of people that God chose in the Old Testament. And he was uh, working with this particular nation. Now, in the New Testament, people from all nations can be saved. But in the Old Testament, he was working with the nation of Israel and he made these promises. So the fact that uh, this Simeon is looking forward to Israel's consolation after they've been through so much. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, Israel has been through a lot. Right. They've been enslaved and attacked and defeated and exiled and cursed and humiliated and so on and so on. And yet, in spite of all of that, Simeon trusts him and he's looking forward to their consolation or their comfort or God's promises coming to pass. So like that Isaiah passage that we read that said rejoice in the midst of ruins, Jerusalem. Right. And then in verse 10 says the Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. Simeon believes that with all his heart, that all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God, that God will keep his promises. So he's looking forward to that. And he knows that he and the nation of Israel and all of the earth needs salvation from God. And he's been waiting for it eagerly, but he doesn't know exactly how he'll do it. He doesn't know how to expect it. Now I told you he was a regular guy. One unique thing that they point out about him is how the Holy Spirit worked in his life. The Holy Spirit is all over this passage as it relates to Simeon. Um, and as a side note, anytime God is at work, the Holy Spirit is behind it. Right. So don't think, oh, if I'm reading the text and it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, I wonder if the Holy Spirit was at work. That's how God accomplishes his purposes is through his Holy Spirit. Right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always working in perfect harmony. In your life, in our church, you see something good that looks like fruit from God, the work of God. You can praise God the Father, you can praise God the Son, and you can praise God the Holy Spirit because he's at work. Right? So we get to see really explicitly here, verse 26. It says, the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Most of us know we're going to die, but that's about the only thing we know about our death. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know what we will see or won't see before we die. We don't know what we will do or won't do before we die. But God gives Simeon some insight that the very thing he had been waiting for more than anything else, the consolation of Israel, God keeping his promises, salvation that will be revealed before all, the Holy Spirit tells him, hey, you're going to get to see the Messiah who brings that salvation before you see death. What an amazing gift for him to give to Simeon. And I wonder how that felt for him. Did the thing he looked to the most, he he knew he was going to get to see with his eyes. You know, it's possible that he woke up every morning wondering, is today the day? Is today the day when I'll get to meet the Lord's Messiah? Is today the day when I'll look God's salvation in the eyes, in the face, and so he's waiting for it. Imagine how that amped up his longing and yearning knowing it could be at any moment that he sees the Lord's Messiah. So he knew he would see the Lord's Messiah but I wonder if he knew that he wouldn't be some impressive towering figure but a regular looking little infant kid. I wonder if he knew that that's how he was going to encounter the Lord's Messiah. And and how was he going to know that it was him when he saw him? These are probably questions that he had, but the Holy Spirit had been gracious to guide him so far. And the Holy Spirit would continue to do that. He was looking forward to Israel's consolation and he was led by the Spirit of God. Um, Real quickly. um, At the risk of belittling the importance and the unique way the Holy Spirit was leading Simeon here. I do want to say this. Part of what it looks like for Simeon to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit, to be open for when the Spirit would guide him to meet the Messiah, that's in part driven by his own trust in God's promises. Uh, And when we are looking forward to something, we're constantly looking for evidence that it's on the way. And so some of us struggle to hear from God in his word, in sermons, in any kind of leanings. Because we don't look forward to anything that God has said he'll do. None of the things that we trust and look forward to and long for have anything to do with God's purposes. So if God was waving a sign saying, hey, here's me being faithful to my purposes, we wouldn't see it because we're not looking for it. I want to encourage you that part of what it means for us to be led by the spirit of God is to long for the things that God has promised to do by the spirit of God. If the only thing we're ever longing for is stuff that just people have promised us. then we're going to struggle to be led by God's spirit in the same way. Salvation we expect is often different than the salvation we need. I wonder what Simeon expected to meet in Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. It says guided by the spirit. The spirit guided him right to where they were. He entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law. So that's how we knew. The spirit guides him in there. The spirit uh, sends him to the temple, the very place where Jesus would be. Joseph and Mary brought him there to do what was customary under the law. And I just want to pause for a moment because here's one of the things we get because we're reading the story and we're not characters in the story. You know when you read a book or you watch a movie and the character doesn't know what's about to happen. It's like a scary movie. It's like Ah, get out, he's hiding under the desk. Don't sit at the desk, don't sit at the desk. You know, you you know stuff that they don't know, right? You have a, a, a better grasp of it. And, and that's happening here too, where there's stuff that Mary understands about who Jesus is. There's stuff that Simeon understands about who Jesus is. But what we have is we have this hindsight. We have scripture kind of pulling the curtain back. So we understand the the, the full impact of what's happening here, that Jesus God in the flesh is the baby that they've carried in. So that makes a a few things striking to me. First thing, they take Jesus to the temple. The temple is where God met with man. Uh, The temple was where God uh, dwelled his presence in a special way so that God's people could in some way be in his presence and the ways that he said could worship him, right, and could meet with God. The irony of that is that the baby that they carried in So this temple is the true temple where God became a man, where God came to earth to meet with men, that we could be in his presence, that we could worship him, that we could come close to him and know him. Who could have known that this baby that was carried in the temple was the whole reason the temple existed in the first place? The temple only existed to point to the existence of this baby, the true place where God can meet man. That's incredible. And so it's one of those moments when you're watching the story and you're like, I don't know if you understand what's really happening right now. Simeon, I don't know if you understand the significance that you're in this temple. Another thing jumped out to me. Jesus' parents are bringing him so they can do what's customary under the law, so that they can obey God, keep his commandments. The interesting thing about that is that the commands that were given to God's people, that law, nobody could keep perfectly. And that law was in part there to show us our need for a savior whose name is. Is Jesus. Who could have expected that this family obeying the law would be holding in their arms the only one who could perfectly fulfill it, the one that would fulfill it on our behalf and the one who it was supposed to be pointing to, the baby that they carried in. Jesus submitted himself to the law that we could be freed from his bondage. We get to see some really special things happening in this text. But I ask that question, how would Simeon know that Jesus is the one that he had been waiting for? Another question is, how are we supposed to know that Jesus is the one. I want you to just pay attention to all the ways God affirms it in this text, the way He orchestrates stuff to point out the specialness of Jesus, from the fact of Jesus being born of a virgin to the way that people respond. Maybe you're here and, and you're on the fence about Jesus. You're not sure how you feel about Him. You're not sure if He is who He said He was. You're not sure if we're just making too big a deal of Him. I want you to pay attention to the way that people responded to Him. In very extreme ways, one author said, we can't just like Jesus. We either kill him or crown him. There is no in between, right? Because the claims that he makes are either blasphemous and foolish or he is who he said he was. And if you pay attention to how people respond to him, it's that extreme. And this is true even while Jesus is a baby. It's not like, oh, I saw him do some miracles, so I I respond to him in an extreme way. Jesus is a baby doing absolutely nothing remarkable, doing whatever any other baby would be doing at that moment. And then this is how Simeon responds when he sees him in verse 28. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for, the, uh, for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Imagine ever responding to a stranger's newborn like this. Simeon has never seen them before. I mean, all of us have been overtaken by the beauty of a newborn before. I don't think we've said, now I can die in peace, God. (laughs) Right? If you have, tone it down a little bit. There's something unique happening in this passage, right? Simeon isn't just going overboard. But he does say that. He says, now I can die in peace. And why does he say that? Right? Of course, because the Spirit had told him, before you see death, you'll see the Messiah. Simeon's like, I saw him. I'm good, right? And it seems like Simeon's probably an older man. He's been waiting a lot, long in his life, and he's saying, I can die now. I can die in peace. That's a phrase people will say sometimes. Sometimes just jokingly, sometimes seriously, now I can die in peace. Or if that happened, I could die in peace. He, Simeon doesn't just say I could sleep in peace. He doesn't just say I could go on with the rest of my day in peace. He's saying I could die in peace. And what you'd have to be saying To say uh, you could die in peace is that you have nothing left to accomplish. One of my questions for you is what would make you feel like you could die in peace? What do you think about that for a moment? What would make you feel like I'm done? Amazing accomplishments, being well known, knowing your name would be remembered, being forgiven by somebody that you've hurt. What would make you be able to say that? Because to say that, that's us saying, I got everything I need. I've done everything I need to do. There's nothing more I need to accomplish. I'm good. Whatever it is that would really make us say I could die in peace, I think is going to reveal what we value most. Because it's going to be the thing that we feel like I could never leave that undone or I couldn't be in peace, even if it was bad, that thing must be taken care of. And just as a reminder, just because we feel at peace doesn't mean that we are. There's such thing as a true sense of peace and a false sense of peace. A false sense of peace is when you're at peace and you think that you're safe, but you're actually headed for disaster. What we have here with Simeon, when he says, I can die in peace now, that's true true peace. Because who he's seen is someone It's actually accomplished peace for him, right? The salvation he's always longed for is here. God said he wouldn't die before he saw him. He's seen him. He can die in peace. He has nothing left to accomplish. There's nothing else that needs to be done because Jesus will do all the work for us. He tells us about this salvation. Verse 31, he says, you've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Just something real quick to pay attention to with this salvation he's talking about. This is something that God prepares for us, not something that we prepare and bring to God. One of the things about um, a savior not being the one you expected, the one you need, not being the one you expected, is that we run after false saviors all the time. But the false savior that we run to most often is ourselves. The false savior that we run to most often is ourselves because we assume that we can do whatever we need to do to save ourselves. I know sometimes we think it's like righteous or holy to be like, nah, Before I really start going to church, before I really start to consider God, I want to get my life together. You know, I want to respect them and like have my stuff together when I come to them. I want you to know that's the highest disrespect. To assume that you could somehow, if you give yourself a few more weeks, reach the holy standard that God requires of us. Especially when he gave his only son to meet that standard on our behalf. This is why he said, Jesus... So that Simeon is saying, this is the salvation that you prepared for us. This is not something we prepare and bring to him. If you have any sense in your mind that you have something to bring to and offer God that would lead you to go to heaven or for God to be pleased just because of just what you did by yourself, I want you to throw it out. It's false. It's a lie. That's clinging to a false savior. One preacher said, sometimes we say, oh, but I, you know, but I'm not good enough, but I don't have enough this. I haven't gone to church enough. I I, I can't find any righteousness. And he says, it's right you don't have any righteousness. You're wrong for looking for it. When the righteousness has been given to us in Jesus, he's rejoicing in the salvation that we have in Christ, who's not quite the rescuer we expected, but he's the one that we needed. Verse 33. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Now that seems um, this is, is stuff like this in the gospel. Sometimes is part of what you know shows me that this is real storytelling. Details that you don't think have to be in there, and some that seem obvious, but we might not think about. Imagine going coming to church with your newborn, and someone sees them and says, "I can die now," and starts so prophesying great things about salvation. You might be a little shocked. So that Mary and Joseph understand something's at work here, but they're still being amazed by the kinds of things. That are happening because this sea of witnesses, you had shepherds, you had wise men, you got Simeon, you had Elizabeth before that. Uh, You have the prophetess Anna right after this part, right? People who are recognizing there's something about Jesus, even when he's a baby. So back to what I was saying earlier, if you're on the fence about Jesus, you may not know how to respond to him yet, but you have to wrestle with who he is and his existence. You have to wrestle with the impact that Jesus had on the world you got to wrestle with why people run into a baby and say, I've seen salvation. What is it that this godly man, Simeon, older man, would look into the eyes of a baby and tell God he's seeing salvation? What is it that would make a kid born to a Jewish family become the most famous person in the history of the world? What is it about this Jesus? What is it about this Jesus that his aunt Elizabeth called him Lord? that his little brother James called him the Christ and that James was so dedicated to Jesus being the Christ that he was murdered for. What is it about this Jesus? It would make a little brother lay his life down, calling him God. What is it about this Jesus that the calendar literally turns on his life and birth? This is 2017 AD. What is it about this Jesus that after he came, nothing has ever been the same? You may not know what to do with Jesus yet, but you have to to wrestle with who he is. You have to wrestle with why people respond to him this way. You gotta wrestle with who he is. He's this ordinary baby but he's so much more than that. Let's keep going. Simeon after this is gonna give another prophecy, right? Joseph and Mary are amazed and he's gonna bless them. And what he says next is kinda chilling. Verse 34 it says, then Simeon blessed him and told his mother Mary. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword that will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is polarizing. You either love him or you hate him. Right, It's not really in between. This is even what he's saying right here. This is, he's going to be the rise and fall of many. A lot will oppose him. There's a lot of stuff that is kind of polarizing like that, where you either love it or you hate it. There's a lot of musicians like that, where it's like, ah, oh, you either love them or you hate them. You think they're a genius or you think it's foolish. Like Tupac. People are like, oh, he's the greatest. They're like, man, he, he ran Hennessy with enemies one too many times. You know, He's not as great as they said. Or J. Cole. Or, you know, there's all kinds of people it's like, ah, people think they're great, but all they really is just polarizing. Politics are polarizing. You ever notice that, like right now, something will happen to a political figure that will be in the news, and two sets of people will watch it, and one person will be like, got him, he's guilty. The other person will be like, see, he's not guilty. Exact same event, completely different perspective about it, as if they saw different stuff. Because sometimes we just see what we're going to see or we just see what we want to see. Jesus is similarly polarizing where some people will see Jesus and say, I'm going to build my life on this Lord. He got up from the grave. I'm going to build my life on him. And yet at the same time, there will be people that oppose him. Even in this prophecy, To Jesus' mom, as he's a baby, Simeon is not trying to pretend like everybody will bow down and worship Jesus. But that's going to be the difference between those who rise because of Jesus and those that he causes to fall, how we respond to him. And what's the right response to Jesus? Sometimes we think the right response to Jesus is, you know, just like celebrating Christmas. And to be honest with you, don't even waste your time considering the birth of Jesus if you're not also going to consider the death and resurrection of Jesus. The beauty of the incarnation is not just that Jesus came, it's what he came to do. And when you read scripture, Jesus came to do a lot of things, but there's something that's at the center of it. You read all the gospels, the climax of the story is his death and resurrection. You read all of the gospels, they're all pointing to this. You hear the stuff that Jesus says. They're pointing to the cross and Simeon seems to allude to the death of Jesus. Even as he talks to his mom right after he's been born, what kind of fool would do that? Why would you bring up his death so close after his birth? It would be a foolish thing unless the end goal of his birth was that he would die and resurrect. Unless what Simeon is not doing is just bringing up something morbid. He's pointing to the significance and the value and the importance of what Jesus came to do. That he's a separating figure. You love him or you hate him. And that Mary will be caused a lot of pain a sword through her soul because of this. That's a chilling thing for him to say. But let me say this. The birth of Jesus matters. In part because of what he came to do. And he came to give his life for sins and to resurrect from the grave. And he's going to come back and make all things new. He's going to come back and make all things new. But the first time, what he came to do, even as he healed the sick, even as he fed the hungry, he came to live the perfect life on our behalf. And he came to pay for our sins and to get up from the grave. Now, when he comes back, he's going to finish the job. Everything's going to be right. But you know what he's invited us to do now to be made right as a kind of first fruits. Like he's, called, he's allowed human beings to be first in line in terms of being made new. That if you would trust in me, I'll give you new life and make you new. Jesus came for sinners. And that's the beauty of what he came to do. That's why Simeon would seem to bring that up even now. So I want to ask you, is Jesus going to cause your rise or your fall? Are you going to be among those who receive Jesus or among those who oppose him? Here's what it says in John 1.12. It says, Jesus came to his own and to as many who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. What it means to receive Jesus instead of opposing him is to believe in his name. Trusting in Jesus. Trusting in what he's done for us. Trusting in his death and resurrection. That's what it means to receive Jesus. And what I want more than anything for us is not just to celebrate a holiday. I want us to know Jesus. And the holiday can be helpful in as much as it points to Jesus. So let, yeah, let's enjoy each other. But I think what John said about pausing is good. One of the things we should pause to do is to consider Jesus. I, I want to encourage you, just read, just read some of Luke tomorrow morning about the birth of Jesus. And if that feels like too much of an interruption in your day, then there's some questions we gotta ask ourselves. We're gonna say, No, we're giving gifts to each other because Jesus got gifts. You know the wise men. <laughs> hey, let's read about the wise men. No, no, no. Let me let me open these gifts real quick. Right. I want to encourage you to pause in a way that will allow you to consider Jesus and not just his life, but also is death. Sometimes the savior we need isn't the savior we expect, and Jesus came in such a humble, unexpected form, a little regular baby. But he was a God man. The best thing about those unexpected hero stories is that those heroes do start out disappointing. But then they're even greater than what people expect. So at first they're like, I'm disappointed. You're not what I thought. And then as it goes on, people think, oh, I see the wisdom in this. This hero is even greater than I expected. Did things even greater than I expected. And that's the case with Jesus, where somebody may have said, I'm surprised that the God of the universe, the best soldier he could find to send us is an infant. But as you watch the life of Jesus, as you watch the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, you see that God was up to something on purpose very specifically. That God wanted to save us through one who was like us. That Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. That Jesus was perfectly righteous in the same crazy, dark, twisted, tempting world that we're in. Right? That we followed after our first father, Adam, in our sin, and now we can follow after the second Adam, Jesus, in righteousness. That God was really up for something and the main application point that I want you to walk away with is to rejoice because like Simeon who sees Jesus the baby and says I've seen salvation and rejoice if you know Jesus you too have seen salvation you have seen the Lord's Messiah Right. The, the only kind of seeing Jesus that matters for us now, while Jesus isn't walking on the earth is to see him with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of faith. And I know that sounds kind of corny and cheesy, but that's the way that we get to see him. And scripture says that's even greater than just seeing him with our physical eyes, because the Lord has given us grace to see him for who he is. There are plenty of people that saw him with their physical eyes and rejected him, but God in his word has told us exactly who he is and tomorrow, today, every day of the year, I want you to rejoice because you have seen salvation. And God did it in an amazing way. So as earlier, you know, people think, well, you know, shouldn't, if a Savior comes for me, shouldn't they be stronger than I am? Well, yes, and the baby Jesus was stronger than us. And he is. He was The God man. God didn't just become a man. He became a baby. And that's amazing that the immortal God put on mortal flesh, that the perfect God came into the flawed world. He created that the true temple was brought to the temple that was meant to point to him, that the giver of the law submitted to the law. And fulfilled the law and freed us from the law. And not just in his birth, but his whole life and in his death he kept up these paradoxes. That the life giver gave his life over. That the creator allowed himself to be beaten and hurt by people that he had created. That in dying Jesus defeated death. And I could go on and on and on. I just want to say this, what God has given us in Jesus is a gift much greater than we could have expected or imagined. The hero that he sent is better than the one you had in your head. It's better than you or whatever kind of people you wish Jesus was like. I promise he's greater than you even understand. And so the opportunity we have is to reflect on him, to consider him, and to rejoice in him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for your word, God. Father, we're so grateful that even though we don't get to look at Jesus with our physical eyes, just yet you've shown us who he is in your word, that we can say we've seen your salvation, Father. And God, we pray that we would be those who are caused to rise because of what Christ has done, and not to fall, that he wouldn't be a stumbling block for us, but he would be our cornerstone. God, we pray you'd help us to rejoice as we... Finish up our time together, and as we gather with family tomorrow, let Jesus be bigger than everything else. Father, let us have a good time. Let us enjoy one another. Let us thank you for the gifts you've given us, Father. But let us not do it at the expense of gratitude for the greatest gift. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.